Hey everyone, I'm Portia Flowers. Hey, and I'm Cynthia Dorsey. And this is Young, Black, and Brave. Young, Black, and Brave is a new podcast, but most importantly, it's a space where we can critically review cinema and discuss the representation of Black women in film. Black women, of course, have had a place in the film industry for some time now, but we want to take a look at it and talk about what that means. When stories are being told, who's included in the storytelling process? Who is centered, who is supporting, and who is erased? These are important conversations to have, particularly as Black women ourselves. We should be able to critique the media that is reflected back to us, and we're gonna try to do just that. It's a new year, new decade, new podcast. We are young, black, and brave. There are a lot of important shifts happening for women in the film industry, and black women should be at the center of these shifts, paid equally and represented authentically. So thank you, Portia, for including me in this discourse. Thank you. Hello, everybody. We are back with episode 14. Hey, Portia. Hey, my Cynthia. How are you? I'm good. I am so impressed with the mayor of D.C. right now turning um, the infamous plaza into the Black Lives Matter plaza right across the street from the White House. I thought Ooh. that was a bold yet petty move <laughs> after. I love it. I love a bold and petty. <laughs> yes. Um, after, you know, um, the president actually called her out on Twitter before this happened and said uh. that she had not allowed Metropolitan Police Department to come and support during the protests in front of the White House. But then the Secret Service posted on their Twitter that Metropolitan Police, in fact, were there. So he was just lying. And I guess that kind of pissed her off, along with other things, you know, D.C.'s taxation without representation and everything that pisses folks off about how um our beloved politicians come into our city use our city live in our city and don't allow us to benefit like their actual cities they represent benefit you know what I mean so um it's just nice to see her step up in that way and she was out there protesting and DC is a very unique city with go-go and music and everything and they even had go-go bands out there underneath the 14th street bridge so I just am so thoroughly impressed about the protests here and just seeing it across the country. I believe Sacramento too has a street painted in yellow and black, Black Lives Matter. So hopefully this will um, encourage mayors across the country to do the same thing. Well, you know, and let's, let's just clarify. So this was, you know, considered an art installation, but it, you know, it was written in big, bold yellow letters that you can see from high up in the sky yes. black lives matter yes. and it's a street that leads right up to the white house um and they replaced the street name yep they replaced the street name so it's called black lives matter plaza so it's, the president lives at 1600 <laughs> black lives matter plaza you understand 
That's where he lives now, guys. That's what people are saying. You know, and I keep hearing back and forth, there's this discrepancy. People are like, well, no, technically that's not it. And really, I don't know, but I do know that he has to see that yes. every day. Yes. He has, and he has to see that from the sky too, I'm sure, when he's in whatever it's called, Air, Air Force, Force One or, or the helicopter. You get you pass right by it on your way to the White House. So, you know, deal with it. I appreciate. I hope they keep it there for as long as possible. You know, I I hope that that street name is you know permanent, yeah. or you know, or at least semi permanent. I hope it wasn't just some stunt. I really do hope that it's it's for real, and you know, because it's about time that people start uh, putting their um, you know start making statements and say it boldly, unapologetically that black lives matter and we're not going to keep tiptoeing around it, especially not when you, when you are so bold as to say every lie that you can think of, um, you know, on Twitter and you can threaten people and you can put targets on people's backs so that other people can threaten them. And, you know, you can again, turn, turn, uh, you know, or threaten to put the military against American citizens. Like it's, it's just, this is wild yes. that that's so, that that's allowed, and that something like painting a street "Black Lives Matter" is so controversial. So, Did but, he tweet know. yet? I don't even know if he tweeted. I didn't even check, but I know he's pissed. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he is upset. He's hot, uh, and, you know. And whether or not that made it to Twitter, I don't know, but I'm sure that. He's gotten wind of that, and uh, he's going to react. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, sir. Who cares? Oh, well. <laughs> so, but, yes, there's been a lot of activity, especially this weekend. Um, this is the first weekend of June that we're recording. So there were um, protests around the world. Um, there's protests in, in my um, hometown of Syracuse, New York, which and it's the biggest protest I've ever seen in my lifetime. I, I'll say that. Um, it looked to be at least a thousand people out there. Wow. Um, which is huge. You know, Syracuse, Syracuse is Syracuse. And, you know, Syracuse is probably like a lot of, a lot of um, smaller cities where, you know, of course we experience the same things that a lot of these major cities experience. We have police brutality, as well, and we have unfair policing and racism and things like that. Um, but it, we just we just don't have the same level of attention. Um, but we have some great organization going on right now, and you know I think this is true for a lot of other cities, small small towns and and, and medium sized cities where. There's a lot of people saying enough is enough, and you're having people who may not have normally come out to uh, protest or come out to say anything in support of Black people. They are now coming out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. So it's just really inspiring. And I think, you know, those are the things that we also have to be aware of, not just what's going on in major cities like LA and New York and Chicago, but we also have to keep in mind how far this is spreading. It's in smaller towns too. Yeah. Um, you know, I've looked at the local newspaper in my mom's um, hometown or near my mom's hometown 
My mom's hometown is so small. They don't have their own little newspaper. Um, <laughs> but the town over does. And uh, they had a protest last weekend. Um, yeah, and this is in Alabama. So, of course, you know, the South is is has a long history of Black resistance, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't think about the smaller towns. We hear about Montgomery. We hear about Birmingham. We hear about Atlanta. But we don't hear about these smaller towns where Black people exist. And, and the backlash in a lot of ways can be a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't have as many protections and, and they don't have as many people caring about what's going on in rural communities and smaller communities. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just very encouraging to see so many people, um, you know, get involved in, in all of the different ways that they can be. Not everybody can be outside. Um, you know, again, we're in a pandemic. Um, and people are literally risking their lives to come mm-hmm. out. Um, there's only so much social distancing you can do in a, you know, thousand person protest. <laughs> but, you know, uh, this is this is a time for people to to be creative in, in their forms of resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, i.e. paint the street in front of the White yes, House. Black Lives yes. Matter. <laughs> Yes. So yeah, I'm I'm just I'm really excited. I'm really motivated and I really hope that we are able to, you know, keep the pressure on and um, you know, until we actually see change cuz we're not we're not going for a nice statement and then back to business as usual. We we can't we can't wait any longer. Yes. I think the biggest way of protesting is attacking um the economic system like that's the biggest form of protest in my opinion because our black dollar matters the most okay so try to buy black on friday june 19th all right now you know and that was a great setup cynthia i don't know if you planned on doing that or that no um but (laughs) as you guys know we are talking about the miniseries Self-Made, the Netflix miniseries. Uh, we spoke about part one in previous episodes. Today, we're going to talk about part two. And this goes right to the heart of, you know, supporting Black businesses, Black entrepreneurship. Um, and we're speaking about this through, uh, you know, the lens of a Black woman. Um, this is a movie about the life of, or inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Part two is, is called Boot Straps. And I'm going to give you guys uh, just a little bit of a of the miniseries synopsis and then as usual Portia will take us through cast and we'll do an episode summary but just in case you are just tuning in for the first time self-made is a fictionalized depiction of the untold and highly irreverent story of black hair care pioneer and mogul madam cj walker and how she overcame the hostile turn of the century america epic rivalries tumultuous marriages and some trifling family to become america's first (laughs) black self-made female millionaire this episode is uh directed by cassie lemon 
was back again. She actually directed part one, yes. and we went through a bit of her uh, resume. Uh, we talked about her career. Of course, she is an actress. She's a writer. She's a producer. She's an award-winning director. And most importantly, you know, from our podcast standpoint, her film Harriet scored a perfect 10 on the Dorsey Flowers test. So, Yay! Yeah. Um, and this episode, the teleplay was written by Janine Sherman uh, Barrow. I hope I pronounced it correctly. If not, I apologize. Um, but she is an NAACP award winning writer. Uh, she wrote, uh, she won the award for outstanding writing in a comedy series uh, previously. And she is an eight time nominee. Wow. So, yes, she, she's been here for a minute. Um, she has <laughs> writing and producing credits on the PJs, ER, Third Watch, Criminal Minds, and Claws. Uh, and she's actually an executive producer for Self Made. So, I miss the PJs. I loved that show. Yeah. The, the whole claymation. <laughs> yes, I love it. Old school. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, so she she's out here. She's a mover and a shaker in Hollywood. Uh, so that's what we have, uh, writing and directing. Of course, we have a lot of the cast back from the previous um, uh, episode. Uh, so we have uh, playing Sarah Breedlove, who we know as Madam C.J. Walker, which is Octavia Spencer. Uh, Lilia, her daughter, is played by Tiffany Haddish. Addie is played by Carmen Ijogo. Um C.J. Walker, or Charles James Walker, um, who is Sarah's husband, played by Blair Underwood. Cleophis, uh, who's C.J.'s father, played by Garrett Morris. Ransom, who's Sarah's lawyer, is played by Kevin Carroll. Uh, John Robinson, who is Lilia's husband, is played by J. Alphonse Nicholson. Uh, we have Esther, who is Lilia's friend, but like you know, we'll we'll explore a little bit uh, in this episode. I think the next episode, just just what that friendship looks like. Uh, she's played by uh, Mona Tarori. Mm. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, this episode, we also see Nettie Ransom, who is uh, Ransom, the lawyer's uh, wife. I don't even know if we ever got his first name. They just call him Ransom. Yeah, they just call him Ransom. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, Nettie Ransom, his wife, is played by Zara Bentham, um, and she is a Canadian actress, and she's most recently seen on the Netflix series Thinning Out. Um, we also meet the character of Sweetness. Um, he'll probably have a bigger role, I believe, in the next episode, but uh, we get the introduction um, on part two, and he is played by Bill Bellamy. Yeah. Yeah, so Bill Bellamy, you know, a lot of times we forget Bill Bellamy is, is known for being, you know, he's a comedian um, and he's known for his comedic roles. But Bill Bellamy has done, um, you know, some really impressive stuff in, in his dramatic acting as well. Um, so he's an actor, of course, he's a stand-up comedian. He's a two-time NAACP Image Award nominee. Um, he first came on the scene. Uh, on the national scene as a host and VJ on several MTV TV shows. Yeah. Uh, on several MTV shows. Yeah. 
um, including MTV Jams and MTV Beach House. Um, and he went on to star in several films, including Love Jones, uh, which to me, I think, was the first time I ever saw him in a dramatic fashion. Uh, and he played he played uh, the villain role so mm-hmm, well, I mm-hmm. thought. Um, he was also in The Brothers, How to Be a Player, and Any Given Sunday. And he also voiced the character of Skeeter in the Nickelodeon TV series Cousin Skeeter. Remember that? Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> Bill Bellamy, this is a fun fact, is actually credited for coining the phrase booty call, which describes the practice of arranging sexual rendezvous via telephonic communication. Y'all got that? What a thing to add to your list of accomplishments, (laughs) Bill. (laughs) What a great thing to add to your list of accomplishments. Yes, 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 yes. He's the one that supposedly has you know, that came up with booty call. And I think that might even be in somebody's dictionary by now. If it ain't in the Webster's dictionary, it's definitely in the urban dictionary. So we also see a historical figure, uh, Booker T. Washington. And he is played by Roger Guinevere Smith. Um, And he is a prolific stage, television, and film actor, Mm -hmm. as well as playwright. Um, He has appeared in several films such as Poetic Justice, Panther, Eve Bayou, and several Spike Lee joints, including School Days, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and Get on the Bus. Uh, He also wrote, produced, and starred in a one-man play called A Huey Newton Story, Mm. which was based on the Black Panther Party's founder's life. And this, uh, this play earned him an Obie Award in 1997. So... Speaking of Spike Lee, I just saw for the first time Chirac. Did you see that? I have not. Not yet. (laughs) What did you think of it? It's on Amazon. It was crazy. All of the dialogue pretty much rhymes. Okay. (laughs) Is this something that we need to run through the Dorothy Flowers test? I think it would be an interesting run through. We could run it through. We should run through all Spike Lee joints. Woo. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll we'll have to prepare for that. Yes. We, we'll have to uh, get yeah. That's that's actually a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So playing Booker T. Washington's wife, Margaret Murray Washington, is Kimberly Huey. And she is a Canadian actress. Uh previous acting credits include Chicago Hope, NYPD Blue, CSI Miami. Grey's Anatomy, The Blacklist. Uh, so yes, she she's been around for a while. You may not recognize her name, but you probably recognize her face. She's been in a lot of stuff. Um, we have the character of Dora Laurie, um, who had a bit of a small smallish role in this episode. I think we'll see more of her later. Um, but she's played by the actress Sydney Morton. Um, she's actually an actress, a singer, and a dancer. Mm. And she's probably best known for her role as Cheryl Overstreet in the Netflix series She's Gotta Have It. So, mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. back to Spike Lee. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we also see a uh, character Reverend Smith, played by Rutherford Gray, and the character Peggy Prosser, played by Karen Glaive. So, this is our cast. 
Uh, Cynthia, do you want to run through the summary of this particular episode? Sure. Part two, Sarah puts a down payment on a factory, but has trouble securing investors to pay for the rest. She decides to gain Booker T. Washington's endorsement, but is blocked from meeting him. Approaching Washington's wife, Margaret, Sarah pleads for her club's support before crashing Washington's conference and making a plea for investors. Washington later crushes her hopes of an endorsement by sharing his own sexist views on women entrepreneurs. Let's get into it. Um, You know, as we did last time, we will start by talking a little bit about the actual characters um, because, you know, this is the biopic, but it's, it's a film. It even says it in the title, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker. Um, so there's going to be some, some inaccuracies there, uh, which brought some controversy to the show or to the miniseries. So we just wanted to kind of use this as an opportunity to educate ourselves and, and our listeners out there yeah. about who these people really were. Now we're going to talk about Sarah Breedlove, a.k.a. Madam C.J. Walker. Um, so Sarah Breedlove was born in Louisiana, December 23rd, 1867. Um, and so in this movie, we saw in, the fir- in part one, her first husband was abusive. Um, but in real life, it was actually her brother-in-law that was abusive to her. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so she ended up marrying her first husband at the age of 14 um, to get away from the abuse. And she ended up having her daughter, Lilia, at the age of 18. Um, however, she became a widow at 20. And so wow. here she is, you know, single mother of a two-year-old <laughs> daughter. And she's only 20 years old. Wow. Um, in 1888, she moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where her brothers were already living, um, making a uh, trying to make a go of it as barbers. Um, so it seems that there was that, you know, there, it was in the family, this, this uh, attention to hair care. In the 1890s, she herself began losing her, uh, her hair due to a scalp ailment. I don't know if it's clear what was going on with her scalp. Um, but that's when she began using Annie Malone's products. Um, and eventually she started to attend her Coral College and became a sales agent for her company. So, and we saw some of that in, in uh, part one. Um, and in 1905, this is where the, the movie uh, veers away from what actually happened. So in 1905, Sarah actually moved to Denver, Colorado to be a sales agent for Annie Malone. Mm. And that's where she met and married Charles Joseph Walker, CJ Walker. Okay. Um, She eventually developed and sold her own product called Wonderful Hair Grower. And she claimed that the formula came to her in a dream. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that we still need to know, you know, I I don't know if we know for sure if this was an original, um, formula or not because the allegation is that and and they will speak to that in in future episodes um that the formula may have come from somewhere else um so yeah 
But her claim is that it came to her in a dream. God gave it to her. Mm. Um, but one thing that we can clear up for sure is that Madam C.J. Walker did not invent the straightening comb, nor did she invent the perm. Mm. And, and I know that, you know, growing up, I remember hearing that Madam C.J. Walker invented the straightening comb. I hadn't heard about the perm thing, but yeah, I, see. I thought that she invented the straightening comb. Yeah, I see. I heard she invented the perm. Yeah. yeah, she did not do either of those things. I guess at some point uh, we should probably see if, if we can figure out who did those, who yeah, made those things, yeah. but she did not. But I do um, know, like, the product originally, I think we see in episode one, she did put lye in it, and you know that perms have lye in it, so maybe that's what people assumed the hair grower were, was. Right, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, we know, you know, when you got that curly hair and then it straightens up, it does look like it grows. So <laughs> I'm sure people are like, wow, this really is wonderful hair grower. Yeah. My hair is long now, but yeah, you're right. It, it probably was some some form of what we know to be as a quote unquote perm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not, not quite. Um, so yeah, so uh, she became known as Madam C.J. Walker and... Uh, she began traveling throughout the South, selling her products. Uh, and by 1910, she settled in Indianapolis. When it was uh, then, it was known as the nation's largest manufacturing center, and that's where she decided to build her factory, her salon, and her training school. Um, in 1913, Lilia, her daughter, moved to Harlem and built a new townhome and a salon. Uh, while Madam C.J. Walker traveled to Central America and the Caribbean to continue to build her business. So she was an international uh, entrepreneur. Yes. Um, And she also organized the Madam C.J. Walker Hair Culturist Union of America Convention. This occurred in Philadelphia in 1917 and is thought to be one of the first national meetings of businesswomen in the country. So this was a quite a big deal. Um, of course, uh, her claim to fame is becoming the first self-made female millionaire. And she also has a legacy of being able to provide black women an opportunity to gain financial and social independence. Mm-hmm. Now, according to her uh, great-granddaughter, Alilia Bundle, um, who wrote the um, the biography on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, um, She, which is what this miniseries is based off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alilia Bundles is a great-great-granddaughter, excuse me, I, I misspoke earlier. Great-great-granddaughter, Alilia Bundles. Um, she spoke about a testimonial from an employee, um, and this is the quote she says, the employee said, you have made it possible for a colored woman to make more money in a day selling your hair products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. Mm-hmm. So that's powerful when yes. you talk about, you know, her cultural impact, her social and financial, um, and, and yeah, her, her impact on black people and specifically black women um, as a big deal. It allowed for mobility that black women never had before. Now, 
let's get into some of this controversy <laughs> around the historical accuracy of part two, shall we? Yes. Okay, so um, Addie Monroe slash Annie Malone. We already talked a bit about this previously. We know that um, the character of Addie Monroe was a bit of an exaggeration of the, the woman, Annie Malone. Um, not only was she an exaggeration, she was also a combination of multiple people. So unfortunately, they kind of used her to, uh, you know, as a stand-in for a lot of the, the challenges that uh, Madam C.J. Walker experienced, um, which I guess explains why <laughs> they got Addie Moreau coming up like, you know, a true villain, like every yeah. single turn. Yeah. That uh, Sarah tries to make Addie is right there. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you. I'm gonna call you ugly. I'm gonna, right. <laughs> I'm gonna do whatever I can to squelch your dreams. Um. So we also have again Booker T. <coughs> Washington, the the you know the great well known civil rights activist. Um. Uh. He was the the founder of uh, Tuskegee Institute, now known as Tuskegee. Institute. Uh, Tuskegee University. Um, so in uh, in the film, you know, we see that he kind of brushed her off, brushed Sarah off. She wanted to. The whole point with her was for her to make a speech. She wanted to get in front of the National Negro Business League convention and speak about her business. Uh, she believed in Booker T. Washington's message of. Um, economic independence and uplifting the race. Mm -hmm. um, in real life, uh, at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention, uh, Booker T. Washington did snub Sarah, uh, but this was in Chicago. Uh, however, she still managed to make her speech. Now, yeah. a year later at the convention, this time in Philadelphia, um, no, sorry. Uh, so, later, um, when he visited Indianapolis for a YMCA dedication, which she helped to make possible, she, she gave a sizable donation at that time to help build the YMCA. He was invited to come um, speak. When he came to speak, he stayed at her house. Mm. So it seems that perhaps, you know, he didn't quite believe in her at first, but somehow she was able to win him over. I got a feeling that her business growing and being in a position to make a donation big enough to, to build up a YMCA probably influenced him of course. to kind of change your mind. Um, <laughs> change mind. Money talks, bullshit walks. That's what they say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, also in the film, we, uh, we are introduced to the organization um, called the National Association of Colored Women. Now, this was a real organization. Yeah. Um, and and they're still in existence to this day. You can go on their website, www.nacwc.com mm -hmm. uh, to learn more. Uh, but they were actually founded in 1896, and uh, they are credited as being the first and the longest-running organization for women of color. They are 123 years old. Yep. Um, their motto is lifting as we climb, which I, you know, that's a, that's a phrase that I've heard. I had no idea that this was, 
a motto attributed to the National Association of Colored Women. Um, and I never even knew that this organization existed until I saw this film. So Really? Yet, I just don't remember ever hearing about this. They're, I've heard of other other organizations, but not this particular one. They have college chapters, too. None of my colleges. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so and it became uh, one of the biggest uh, black organization, black women's organizations of its day. Now, here's a little uh, short history of its founding. So in 19, sorry, in 1895, and they alluded to this a little bit. It was, it was very subtle. You might have missed it. Um, but um, a woman by the name of Florence Balgarni of the English Anti-Lynching League wrote a letter to James W. Jacks, who was the president of the Missouri Press Association, asking for his help with the anti-lynching movement. Um, you know, part of the, and, and, you know, past this present present is past we are we again we are living in a we're calling it the black lives matter movement but it's a it's part of the overall resistance that black people people of african descent have been fighting in this country yeah. and around the world yeah. forever um and so back then they were trying to fight um lynching and there was an anti-lynching movement and they needed the press to help um, uh, share this information so that the country could know and the world could know about the atrocities that were being committed against Black people, Black bodies. Um, she was asking for his help, and his response was really, um, it, was, it was devastating. His, his response attacked Black people and Black women specifically. Mm. And I'm going to read you this quote. He said, quote, the Negroes in this country are wholly devoid of morality. They know nothing of it except as they learn by being caught for flagrant violations of law and punished therefore. They consider it no disgrace, but rather an honor to be sent to prison and to wear striped clothes. The women are prostitutes and all are natural liars and thieves. Out of 200 in this vicinity, it is doubtful if there are a dozen virtuous women mm. of that number who are not daily thieving from the white people. Mm. Whoa. I mean, it's shocking words then, shocking words now. Um, and, you know, and, and what's even more disheartening is that I'm sure there's a lot of people today who who will say, you know, some form of this. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they wholeheartedly believe what, what James Jack said about Black people and Black women. Now, motivated by this response, several Black women's organizations came together in Washington, D.C. Um, in 1896 to organize uh, and, you know, uh, kind of uh, pushed by this uh speech by Josephine St. Saint, Saint Pierre Ruffin, the leader of the New Era Club in Boston. This is what she said. She said, the reasons why we should confer are so apparent. We need to talk over not only these things which are of vital importance to us as women, 
but also the things that are of special interest to us as colored women. Mm-hmm. So that's really important to, you know, to note the specific, the specificities of, um, you know, issues and challenges that black women face, not just being black, not just being a woman, but being a black woman and why it's important to organize. Um, and so that's what drove them um, to form the National Association of Colored Women. Um, now, here's a few of their notable founders, um, including Harriet Tubman, uh, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, who we know, um, Cynthia, because she is a soror. She's a member of Delta Sigma Theta. Um, And also a notable founder, Margaret Murray Washington. All right. Who we see in the film, yes. She is actually um, listed as the fifth president from 1912 to 1916. Um, Now, in the film, they say that she's the leader, which, you know, I'm going to assume that they mean she was the president of the organization, but the convention is supposed to be set in 1910. They had a, a flyer or a banner that showed that it was 1910. Um, so, you know, they played a little bit with the facts there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Uh, so another thing was that many of the members were educated, well-educated. Um, many of them came from uh, relatively, um, you know, privileged backgrounds. A privilege for, for black people. Um, and they were, you know, of course, considered activists. Um, they fought uh, a, a major, um, um, a major issue on their platform was uh, women's suffrage. So they fought for the right to vote as well as racial equality and anti-lynching. Um, so in the film, they were kind of depicted as, you know, a nice, genteel kind of women's group, almost like an auxiliary group um, from the um, Negro Business League organization. Uh, So some are saying that it it may have been unlikely that they would have been as passive as they were depicted in the film, you know, wanting to, quote, stay in a woman's place. Uh, Who who knows exactly? Because we also know that it, it... being a woman, being a black woman, um, it's difficult, was difficult, continues to be difficult, and having to pick and choose and figure out how to use your voice and when to use your voice, where your influence lies. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to say whether or not they they were the way that they were depicted in the film. Um, but I would like to think that they might not have been quite as passive. Yeah, and I I definitely saw power in them, though, beyond whatever was written. I just was like, even, I know we'll get to this, but even when um, Sarah just wanted so badly for Washington's endorsement, I kept yelling at the screen, like, you need to get these ladies' endorsements, because they, to me, were the, they were the, the power they were they were the audience they were the ones who were going to be able to use the 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 products yes absolutely yeah um but yeah yeah and we'll, we'll get to that um but yeah and so just to wrap this up um so after its incorporation in 1904 
the organization became known as the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, and this is its, its name today. Um, so as I said, today, the NACWC is 123 years old, and the current president goes by the name of Andrea Brooks. So there you have it. For more information, go to their website, Google them. They've been here. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, in the previous episode for part one, we uh, covered some of the themes that um, that popped up for us. We already covered colorism and we covered hair. Um, And of course, those themes certainly carry over to this uh, to part two. Um, But there's also some additional themes that um, really kind of come through here. Where would you like to start as far as some of the themes that you think kind of stood out for you? I think the sexism piece stood out for me most in part two. Yeah. It was um, the most gut-wrenching in part two for sure. Yeah, I think that was, I think that was a, a very major Thing that that went through the entire episode here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, just a couple of things that I was writing down. Um, you know, again, her trying to a major plot point of this episode was her trying to get um, the endorsement of Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and and the whole point with that was because he was going to be in town with the National Negro Business League. And this is a gentleman's organization. It was at the time, it was a gentleman's organization. Um, and she's a businesswoman, but, you know, she's not a man. Um, and so it was difficult for her to even, first of all, get a ticket. Yeah. She's trying to, you know, ask CJ to get her a ticket or get them tickets. And he got tickets to bring himself, his father, and he was going to bring John, the son-in-law, who who, you know up until this point has shown himself to be untrustworthy unreliable like why are we going to reward this and she was like absolutely not the whole reason is because of my business i'm like i'm going you're gonna have to find your own way but that ticket is mine yeah but i also question her in that a, a lot because what Cleophas says, well, you don't agree with Booker T. Washington. You don't agree with he, with with what he's saying, and some of the things, like even during his speech, you could see all of them in even the audience looking at each other. I I remember he said that black people could be separate from white people and still equal, and everybody mm-hmm. kind of like looked at each other like, nah, brother, like no, and so she. She's chasing the endorsement of a man she did not even agree with, but knew that he had influence on other potential male investors. And I just, yeah, yeah, I just like this, this chase for men um, to, to give you the green light or to give you money. Um, I know it speaks to the times, but I feel like she was overlooking the women in her circle. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that's the important piece is that we have to recognize where the power, um, where the power was centered. Um, you know, if, if she had any chance of growing, she was going to have to have 
male buy-in of some sort. Um, you know, even even just with the way that the, that the episode opened at the beginning, it was, it was she knew it was going to be difficult yeah. to grow her business without the help of men. She yeah. needed, uh, you know, even the men in her life. She needed CJ to help. Is you know when when the episode opens up and we see that she's kind of laying out her vision for what she wants for her factory, and she turns around and she looks at these black men that she's pitching to, they turn around and they look at CJ. And the entire time, they're just talking to him. So even though she's responding and she's trying to say, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, it's going to be a great investment, we want, you know, we want you guys. And every time they keep looking to him. Because she knows she can't can't overcome that barrier no matter what. It's always going to be there. So she's trying to play the game, you know, with the cards that she's dealt. Um, so yeah, it, it's a very frustrating thing, but I think it's, it's also important for us to remember that piece of history that, you know, there once, there once was a time where women just had no choice but to, uh, you know, to seek the approval basically of men if they wanted to get ahead. And I, um, I, I want to today to an extent. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say, Portia, is that and that we also need to figure out ways today to rally around each other, you know, yeah. instead of chasing other races, other genders. There is so much power in black women alone that we could get a lot done and accomplished if we just lean on each other. And I think, you know, and I think what you just said is, is a really powerful point too. Um, because, you know, even though black women were, you know, in a lot of ways shut out of certain spaces, um, you know, so there was that exchange with um, Sarah and CJ and he was trying to tell her, well, you know, uh, you don't need a ticket. Um, wives usually come with their husbands and they kind of, you know, sit in the kitchen and they make the refreshments. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, he was trying to justify why she didn't actually need to be sitting there. And she was like, you know, I didn't come here to make sandwiches. I came here to do business, which, you know, yes, absolutely. But at the same time, it's, um, it's, it's a little catch 22 because uh, in order for her to do business the way that she wants to it's almost as if she has to act like a man she has to get in in these spaces that you know are quote-unquote for men and she's almost rejecting these women who have decided to use you know use what they have to use the influence that they have yeah um so i think sometimes we can get into little dangerous territory when we're trying to push for equality or we're trying to you know, do the things that we want to do without, without these barriers. We have to make sure that in the process, we don't um, step on other black women in the process. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And also don't negate what's happening in the kitchen. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we all like today, we want to be at the top. But those of us with a service spirit and a service heart, there's a lot that goes on in that realm, too. And we cannot negate that. 
That's right. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, um, I'm not a historian, but um, I've heard people, you know, especially those who kind of study uh, black history and, and with a focus on black women, they talk about the importance of looking beyond the text or looking beyond traditional um, resources, because a lot of times, you know, if you were to just look at the traditional resources, you would think that black women were not there. Black women weren't activists. Black women weren't vocal. Black women didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you, if you look deeper, if you look in, um, you know, uh, church flyers, or if you look at diaries, or if you look elsewhere, places and spaces where black women were, you realize just how active they were. They might not have had much, but they did a lot with what they with what they had. Um, and they had their, their spheres of influence, um, you know, because women have traditionally been, um, you know, responsible for raising children, the influence that they had over children um, in certain ways and the advocacy that they had over children, the advocacy that they, that they had for each other um, and the ways in which they could influence the men in their lives um, to try to, you know, go in a certain direction or to push certain policies. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it was a lot of subtle stuff. Um, as well as things that were more public and vocal. You're absolutely right. We can't discount the things that may on the surface seem as though they're weak yeah. or unimportant, yeah. but they actually are very much so. They're very important. Yeah. And I just think half of them didn't want to be around their husbands anyway. Like <laughs> they wanted time of bonding with their fellow um, women, educated women. Okay. It's very hard to get in a group of women where you guys can just chill and talk without having to take care of your husband, having to take care of your children. They had a moment to talk and to plan and to, um, you know, discuss about next moves. And I think that 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 too would be would have been a great place for Sarah to go. And that's what. Um... Uh, Margaret Murray Washington was saying she was, you know, she did mention that uh, towards the end of the film when um, when when Sarah Breedlove was telling her, you know, trying to say we we need to go out there, we need to do stuff. I don't understand why you guys are okay back here. And she was just like, you know, it's hard to find other educated Black women, other like-minded educated Black women. This is important for us. We want to be here. Um. So yeah, you're you're so right with that. Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, one of the other things that uh, they touched on in this film, um, this is more than just sexism. It's it's you know the the dangers of of being a woman, and yes. you know yes. Sarah again trying to push. Um, you know she's a businesswoman and she's trying to grow her business. She believes in it so much. Um, and she's struggling to get an investor. Um, and then she hears that Theodore, the mortician, um, I think he's, he's the richest colored man in the world. And they, they say that he's the rich, not in the world, in town. Mm-hmm. Um, they say he's the richest colored man in town and she doesn't want to wait. She wants to go and give him a pitch. Um, business person to business person. 
to see if he might be interested in investing in her company. And she ends up um, being assaulted. He tries to rape her. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that she had a pistol in her in her purse, she would have certainly um, been raped. Um, and she had to fight this man off. And, you know, it's, it brings home just another level of reality. Uh, of course, it's something that, that women have to uh, deal with today. But, you know, it's, it's that, it's that, um, it's, it's the, the difficulty of, put, you know, you, you wonder how come sometimes women may not push or women may not say much or women may not just go out, you know, just go on and be an independent black woman. What does that mean? And what could that possibly open you up to? Yes. There's people out there who don't respect you as a woman, period. Right. And so you have to have a man there for your own physical protection. Um, and so that's difficult when you want to be seen as a person and you want to be seen as a businesswoman, you know, a business person, and you've got this, this entrepreneurial spirit and you just want to talk about the, you know, brass tacks. You want to talk about the numbers and all they see you as is just this weak woman that they can take advantage of and who's going to believe you anyway. It's, uh, that was, that was tough to watch. Yeah, it really was. But I'm glad that they showed that. Now, I, you know, I didn't do this much digging. I don't know if she had, um, you know, had a history of sexual assault or not. But, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of women do. Yeah. A lot of women did back then. Um, so I'm sure it wouldn't be um, far-fetched to think that she may have run into some type of similar situation. But what really troubles me is that she was more concerned about what CJ would feel mm. than she was about her own well-being. You mm-hmm. know, and I... <laughs> women are a are beautiful creatures that the amount of empathy we have towards our black men is it's it, it's a it's above you know what I think it expands upon what a human nature is sometimes and like I I just I, we we've got to like figure that out and and all and this is this piece is a period piece and we are now in 2020 and it's women still doing that yeah yeah there's a lot you'd be not you'd be surprised but i think a lot of men would be surprised the the secrets that the women in their lives keep yes the, the information that they hold on their behalf you know afraid that if they say something to them they might you know, react in a way that could be damaging, that could be detrimental to themselves and to others. Yes. The ways in which women protect men emotionally never gets talked about. Never. Never. Never gets <laughs> talked about. We always talk about the ways in which men are expected to protect women physically, expected to provide for women financially, but we never talk about the ways in which women um, add value to men's lives 
and also the ways in which women protect men yes. at their own expense. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's an example right there. She, you know, when she comes back home and she's disheveled and immediately her father-in-law, Cleophas, he can tell something happened to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she tells him and he's just like, you know, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. And then she says, don't tell him. Don't tell CJ. And he's like, no, nothing good will come from it. Mm. So then you just yeah. carry that. We're like walking around with burdens as black women. Just mm-hmm. carrying you that. carry that. And then, you know, if you do release it, it's to each other. Because, you know, the next time that something like that comes up is when uh, Sarah talks to the women's group um, in the kitchen, you know, as she's trying to get their support yeah, um, and hype her own self up to go out there and speak in front of the, the group on, on stage. Uh she talks about, you know, this is a quote that she gives. Um, Sometimes silence is the only protection a colored woman can count on. And now that I finally learned to tell my story, I can't be silent anymore. Um, but before that, she, you know, she mentions the, the danger um, of being a woman, being mm-hmm. a black woman, you know, and how she, you know, she even mentioned her own sexual assault. And I'm sure that other women have experienced that too, yes. you know, and some of them nodded in agreement. And I think there yes. was, you know, just a look at, um, Addie, uh, where she just, you know, I think she, I don't know if, if this was actually confirmed in the previous episode, but there was some type of allusion to her having, um, a physical assault. Yeah. May have been sexual they did assault. Mention yeah, some it. Type of abuse. yeah. They yeah. mentioned it. So she, you know, she kind of was looking, looking like, yeah, you know, that happened to me. I can relate. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that they, you know, it's, it's something that they probably wouldn't even feel safe telling anybody but each other. And that silence being a protection. Because um, what else can you do? Yep. And it doesn't help like your leaders, you know. Um, like Booker T. Washington is uh, was a prominent black leader at that time, and she goes to the conference to speak to him specifically. And when she takes it upon herself to go up on the stage to talk about her hair care line, and he pulls her outside, he basically just, you know promote this women are lesser than ideology saying you ladies need to be kept in your place. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's like, I'd rather endorse a palm reader than a hair culturalist, Mrs. Walker. And your little outburst in there is precisely why you ladies need to be kept in your place. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it, you know the she she's telling she's kind of parrot parrot. She's repeating what he said, what he was saying previously. He was yep. advocating for economic independence. He was yep. advocating for upliftment of the race. Um, you know, through through entrepreneurship, um, and she was saying, "Yeah, that's right. I believe that you know." The race can be uplifted through female entrepreneurship. This is this is the way of the future. I can see it. 
you know, just as clear as day, this is what we need to help all of us. Um, and, you know, she, but she's met with this, with this demoralizing and defeating reaction because he's more concerned about the upliftment of the Negro race by uplifting Negro men. Yes. yes. That's how we uplift through the man. She says that all Negroes need to be lifted up. He says the Negro man needs to be lifted up first. And it's not changed. It has not changed much. It has not changed much now in 2020, even in this black lives matter movement that it, you know, that frustrates me so much, you know, we need to be lifted together. It's not a gender thing. It is not a gender thing. We are all being murdered by uh, police. We are all being called on, um, called 911 on by Karens. It knows no gender. So why is it that the male has to be lifted first? Why? What's the logic behind that? There's well, no- you know, and he gave, he gave some insight into his logic because, you know, she says, oh, well, you know, I, I can, um, I can double or, or triple, you know, these women's income so that they're not having to work um, in domestic occupations. They can be, um, you know, they can, they can sell these products. And he said, yeah, and they can out earn black men. Oh my God. And she's just like, oh, so is this what it's all about? And he's in his point is, we are not going to be able to be taken seriously if our women surpass us. We can't let that happen. Therefore, I'm not endorsing anything that's going to uplift black women over black men. And she we says have it's to not show a that us Negroes are, yeah, we're, we're, it's not a competition for her, but for him it is because they have to compete against basically white men. And white men have already had it structured where white women are not better than, you know, not higher than, than white men. So we if are we're going to show ourselves white. to be the same as white men, you know, or just as good as white men, then our black women need to be below us, just like white women are below white men. No. That's his. <laughs> but the, there's a lot of people that think that way still to this day. I to know. Point. I know. What? <laughs> No, we are not white and we should not be modeling ourselves off of white people. We are black. Not only are we black, but all we are um so colorful. Different we have Caribbean blacks, we have Latino, we have our the black culture is so vast. It is so vast. We cannot lessen ourselves by modeling ourselves off of the way white culture operates. We cannot do that. Yeah. So, yeah, th- you know, these are things that we've been struggling with for years now, decades, centuries. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, that we still have yet to, um, to figure out. Well, you know, to, to come to terms with, um, but we're still working on it. You know, again, to your point with Black Lives Matter and, and the struggle to remind people that all Black Lives Matter, yes. um, not just certain Black yes. lives, you know, that includes Black women, that includes uh, Black trans people, yes. you know, that includes Black children. You know, we need to we need to show up and show out for all Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah, it's it's all it's very interesting, you know, watching this film and watching this mini series and seeing just how much ties into issues that we continue to talk about to this day. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, again talking about the theme of sexism is I found it very interesting that part of Booker T. Washington's um, aversion to Sarah and allowing her time to speak, um, you know, it's just his general, um, you know, thoughts about beauty culture. He thinks that it's frivolous. Mm. And as a matter of fact, he thinks that um, he, he thought that it was uh, an attempt by black women to try to attain uh, Eurocentric beauty standards. Yes. Which I thought was very interesting because, you know, there is that, that question even today, you know, when it comes to beauty aesthetics and, you know, what is it that, that particularly black women are trying to do, not quite understanding that there's power dynamics there as well. You know, if, if it were, um, politically advantageous it was if it were financially advantageous to wear nappy hair to have an afro and go into the business room you know the the boardroom everybody would be doing it but it's not it's you know it's it's still a political act to wear your hair in its natural state to you know to allow it to be curly and to not stretch it out to not straighten it out um to be more acceptable yeah. in that way. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is just the general um, denigration of anything that has to do with women. You know what I mean? Like there's just a things that, that seem to be more specific to women tend to be downgraded, mm-hmm. tend to be looked down upon. It's not serious enough. It's not important enough. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting, you know, even to this day. So, you know, go with me here. I'm going to take us on a slight tangent, but I'll come. It's, it's going to bring us back. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so not too long ago, um, I saw this, this headline about Harry Styles. Harry Styles is a, you know, pop singer. He was in this, a boy band called One Direction. I, you know, I'm, I'm, that, that's beyond me. I, I don't know much about these boy bands anymore. Um, and I didn't know much about Harry Styles. I just knew that he was famous and that he had a huge fan base, particularly a fan base of young girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I heard him say, you know, something about he was sick and tired of people um, putting down his young fan base, his, his young female fan base. And he was just like, y'all should really, basically, y'all should give them the respect that they deserve. You know, the same respect that you give anybody else. They like what they like. So what if, you know, if what they like is pop music? So what if they show their appreciation by, you know, wearing T-shirts or, you know, screaming or whatever young girls do when they really like an artist? Mm -hmm. That's them. So stop putting them down. Stop, Stop making fun of the things that they like. And, um, and I really thought about that because, I mean, I think he's absolutely right. We, we do live in a society that automatically makes 
fun of things that, um, you know, that read as feminine, anything that, that yeah. women like in abundance, yeah. you know, anything that has a strong female fan base, there's something frivolous about it. There's something that, that shouldn't be taken seriously. And, you know, and we see that even in the ways in which they're talked about, the way that they're critiqued. If you look at a lot of these, um, you know, film critics and um, television critics and music critics, a lot of them are white men, grown white men. Mm. And they're out here talking about stuff that's not necessarily directed to them, that they don't quite understand. Um, and so it's very easy for them to, um, to uh, put it down and, 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 you know, apply whatever labels they want on it to say that this is not good. This music isn't good enough. This film isn't good enough. But the things that speak to them as white men, adult white men, now that's something that they can write, you know, whole essays on. That's something that's worthy. Yeah. And that's something that we need to see more of. So it's very interesting the things that we decide is good or worthy of our time and the things that we decide is not worthy of our time. And a lot of that is based on our own identity, the things that we can actually yeah. relate to. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah, we could probably talk a bit more about all the ways in which we saw sex sexism play out in this. Okay, so moving on from, or you know, piggybacking off of conversation about sexism, um, let's talk about Sarah's kind of complicated relationships with some of the black men in this in this film. Mm. Um, so we see, you know, we talked a bit about uh, Booker T. Washington and how he want, he didn't want to endorse her, um, you know, partly because of the, his feelings about beauty culture and, you know, his thoughts about um, chasing white standards of beauty and also his fear of black women surpassing uh, black men um, economically. Mm. Um, now what about, what about her relationship with CJ and Ransom and kind of comparing and contrasting those two? I remember, um, when this series first came on, a friend of mine had reached out and was like, I don't like how, uh, Madam CJ Walker is talking to her husband. And I was just like, what? Like, I I didn't think much of it um, until having to, like, rewatch it for the sake of the podcast. And um, I still, I can understand. I feel like the way in which she talked to Ransom as someone who worked for her was different than the way she talked to CJ. It, it, in a lot of ways, she called out CJ, in my opinion, um, mm. and didn't want him to be too upset about things, but she really was not taking no for an answer, which I think is my friend's argument, is that in a marriage, um, you have to communicate with your significant other and even if you have these like grandiose ideas and you're entrepreneur and all of that together, you guys have to figure out, 
your moves. And I just think she didn't really care what CJ was saying. You know, she was going to do it anyway, but she just didn't want to see him upset. Um, but as far as ransom, it's just like, ransom, go get this. Ransom, like, I was just like, oh my God, stop yelling that bad name like that. But, you know, he worked for her. So, I don't know. I just think um, this, in a way, she defies, you know, stereotypes because she is an entrepreneur. She is running the show and everything. Um, and as viewers, I think, my friend included, we're used to seeing men take on that role in mm-hmm. cinema and in television. So it was really nice to see her in control of her life in that way. Um, but there is also that, you know, okay, you want to take out a second mortgage and you just, you already have the pa- paperwork drawn up and you didn't talk to your husband about it. That's a problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to your point, it is a little different, you know, when it comes to Ransom because he, he is working for her um, and they don't have that personal relationship in that way. Um, I do find it very interesting that he, you know, at least through the, um, a bit of the first episode, I think we saw him towards the tail end and definitely throughout this episode, he is all in. And, you know, whatever kind of roughness or, you know, she might be a little gruff or a little rough with him sometimes in her delivery. Um, But he's just, you know, he's like, whatever, man, we got to we got to push this thing. I believe in this business so much so that he's, you know, willing to play the numbers game Mm -hmm. to try to win some Mm -hmm. money. He doesn't have any money, but he wants to invest in it. And he, you know, goes and he has this private conversation with her and he's just like, you know tonight uh, so there was um, a scene where they were they were inviting Booker T. Washington over um, because they wanted him to give the endorsement and they were going to throw a party and he was going to come and it was going to be great and she had such high hopes and you know Ransom was like okay this is your big night your life is going to change and after this endorsement everyone's going to be running up to invest in your company but I want to be the first to invest yeah here's my money and it was just such a really sweet moment and just an awesome show of a black man supporting a black woman's dream yeah and her future and he you know he said quote your tenacity is remarkable madam yes and I just you know I could have cried right there it's just the 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 respect of it all. Yeah. He just, he was so full of respect for her. Um, I just, I, I just so appreciated that. Even um, his and he wife. wanted to protect her. Yeah. yeah. Even how he revered his wife as well. And when Madam CJ Walker was talking to his wife and Ransom came in and said, you know, you have a fine wife. He basically turned it all over to his wife. She's the, she's the lead of the household. And, that yeah, was he was like, my... I may have the degrees, but she, you know, she, she did. She yes, did everything. yes. It was such a good thing to see on television. Like, really good. Yeah, yeah. They're very humble. He kind of carried himself in a very humble, respectful, 
um, you know, kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem, you know, I don't want to put too much on it, but, you know, it seemed like he seems to be, to understand himself to the point where he was, it wasn't necessarily ego driven. You know what I right, mean? Right, right. So he was able to see this woman walk in her full power, Sarah Breedlove, mm-hmm. and, you know, and not feel threatened in that way, mm-hmm. as opposed to CJ, unfortunately, where I felt like he had aspects of that in him, but then there were other, you know, there were other parts of him that was just like, I, I can't, I don't know how much more I can take of feeling like I am Mr. Sarah Breedlove, yes. you know, even though she professionally went as Madam CJ Walker, Yes. you know, and, and, you know, if he knew then what, what he know, what we know now, she became Madam CJ Walker. Yes. You know, like I said before, I had no idea she had her own name. Um, but yeah, you know, especially in the first episode and then we see it um, start to wane in the second episode, he was so supportive. It was so encouraging. He was so loving um, towards her. And, you know, being that that business partner, he was in charge of advertising her products and helping her pitch to investors, um, even pitching on her behalf. Um, you know, and even when she pushed him to go talk to Booker T. Washington, they were still at the conference and he had to go to the bathroom. She made him go follow him in the restroom. Right. And then we find out later, you know, once he comes back out, he's like, yes, you know, because he wants, he's going to come over and he's going to give an endorsement. And they were excited. And then, <laughs> you know, later at the party, they realize he's not coming. He ain't coming. And now Sarah's like, you know, CJ tell me everything. And he was just like, well, I locked the door. And uh, <laughs> I think he got scared. <laughs> oh, my God. And she was like, what? Yeah. You did what? You, like, I'll never get the endorsement now. You messed up everything, you know? And so it's, it's that, you know, it's the situation of kind of feeling like you're let down mm-hmm. by your partner and you, so you don't necessarily treat them in a gentle way. You just kind of, it comes out. And unfortunately it came out and it, you know, it's public, you know, sometimes she treats him in a way that you don't necessarily expect wives to treat their husbands right. in public. Right. And he has to keep swallowing that. And, you know, especially during that time, it's a very male dominated society. So it, it makes him look like he is weak. He's less than a man, you know, it kind of emasculates him in a way. Yeah. But, you know, she's, she's asserting her power. She's asserting her authority and you know it shouldn't be a competition um but it ends up being that way yep he was very insecure cj just a very insecure man as he becomes more successful he becomes less secure in their relationship and in his position um in their household Mm mm-hmm so yeah, that that causes friction. Like the more ambition she has, the you know, the worse their relationship becomes. I think he's also intimidated by ransom as well. Mm. Um, you know, being Sarah's right hand man, essentially, and he feels like that's his position. 
Um, so he's like very <laughs> rude. That's something he can handle. Like you can't go up against a man, you know, he feels like he, he can handle that. So he's very rude to ransom in scenes. I feel like. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that scene where, um, CJ and Sarah are debating whether or not to, um, you know, take out another mortgage to pay for this factory or, you know, to sign this contract. And he's like, absolutely not. We're done here. Um, there's no need for you to continue to expand. And, you know, unfortunately, bad timing. Ransom comes back and he's like, I got the contract for you, ma'am. Right. And he's like, wait a minute. You did this without even talking to me. Right. She's not necessarily asking CJ for permission. When she talks to CJ, she's just talking to him. But he's thinking that she's asking for his permission. Yeah. And that's just, that's not where she's coming from. Nope. <laughs> you know, even when, when it, when she talks about her business, she says, I don't know if you notice, sometimes she says this is our business, but most times she says this is my business. Yes, she does. And I feel like she kind of says it's ours just to kind of placate him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, she but does. She does. Yep. It's her business. And, you know, you. I'm glad that you support my business, but this is my business. Yep. It's and I also her house as well. So <laughs> essentially, like, no, he he's. He can't find his footing as the man, and it is is eating him alive. So, yeah, yeah, and you know, not to mention his his job really revolves around her business. Again, he he runs the advertising part as well as other things. So it's not even like he has something else going on for him. Um, so you know, he has nothing but time to let this stuff fester in him the slights that he feels like he's enduring, um, you know, or like when um, they were at the convention and Sarah finally made the decision, she's just going to walk up to the stage and just say what she got to say. She's tired of waiting. And um, CJ tries to grab her and yeah. she snatches yeah, her arm sure away. Does. And he's just, you know, he looks embarrassed and embarrassed. he's just like, yes. you know, and he just sits there and then she makes her speech and they clap. Yeah, and he's the only one that's sitting there with a scowl on his face. Yeah. Now, we would be remiss if we did not talk about one of the other major themes in this film, which is black entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, we have Booker T. Washington speaking about his uh, strategy for economic independence as a pathway to uplift the race. Um, and then we also have, of course, the National Negro Business League, which is um, hosting the convention that Booker T. Washington is speaking at. Um, now, this is normally an opportunity for black men, um, black businessmen uh, to network and to share. Um, and But black women are pushed aside, even though it's called the Negro Business League. It's not the Negro Men's Business League. Um, but it's understood that women are not supposed to be involved in that so you know how are black female entrepreneurs supposed to advance themselves professionally um you know without having those networks available to them because surely they can't go to these white women's organizations 
and then they can't go to these black organizations because they're made with men in mind. Um, so what are you supposed to do? Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> um, say that again, Portia. Sorry. Um, yeah, so, you know, just the fact that there are women that are being pushed aside, um, not being able to find a safe space for them to grow as entrepreneurs in these organizations that are built for black people, mm-hmm. but really is built for black men. And surely they can't go to these white women's spaces. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it just makes it really difficult, you know, not just, we, we don't just see it with Sarah where she's fighting to get herself put on the speakers list. Um, but we also see it with Addie. So, you know, there was that moment earlier, um, I think on the first day of the convention, um, Booker T. Washington. So Sarah thought that she was able to get on the, on the speakers list. Mm-hmm. And uh, Booker T. Washington was making his uh, introduction for this woman, this female business person. And she was going to introduce herself. She's got this great company, blah, blah, blah. And Sarah's standing up. CJ had to put his hand on her shoulder, sit her down because Addie (laughs) walked out from the side. She was the one that was actually going, that was actually being introduced. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Sarah, uh, you know, uh, just immediately felt demoralized. It's like, oh, my gosh, this lady just will not go away. Um, But you also see that this isn't really a triumph for her either, because instead of focusing on her business, um, he he kind of speaks about her look. He he refers to her being, you know, an attractive woman and. All she's going to do is just sell some raffle tickets for Tuskegee Institute. <laughs> she didn't even get a chance to speak. <laughs> uh, she had like no cards and everything. She was ready. She was ready. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can kind of see the embarrassment on her face, especially when he uh, referred to her look. She she didn't come there to be looked upon. She came there to be heard and to, you know, really pitch herself. Um. Yeah, so that was that was disappointing. That was and she, disappointing. he even said, right? He asked the men in the audience. He's like, right, men or whatever, and they're like, yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> how freaking inappropriate! Like that is so inappropriate. But we're di- we're we're dealing with a different time. No, but, but again, we're still today. <laughs> but again, even today. We see yeah. that inappropriateness about how black men uh, treat black women. It is, it, I don't, ugh, yuck. It was, that was just all bad. That was, yeah. I, did, I hated that so much. And you could see, you know, originally um, Sarah being a little upset that Addie gets a chance to be up there but then when she hears that she'll just be selling raffle tickets i saw the empathy in her at that moment like mm-hmm. how humiliating that would have been and and you see her talk about addie 
with the other women. I mean, look at Addie. She didn't mention Addie's name, but when she mentioned abuse with the other women, she looked at Addie. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when she when Sarah herself just um, took over the stage, Addie clapped for her. And so it was just nice to see that moment of their support in one another, even though, you know, they were like at odds with their business endeavors. Yeah, because they're fighting the same fight. At the end of the day, they really are fighting the same uh, similar fight. Um, yeah. You know, again, we have we do have those um, uh, colorism at play as well, um, and so there's certain things, certain things that may um, bring about privilege for Addie in in ways that it does not bring privilege for for Sarah. Um, but those privileges are are in a lot of ways can be very limiting, and can come with their own set of challenges. Um, you know, especially when you're talking about men holding so much power, yeah. there's so few business, there's so few opportunities for women in business. You have white people holding the power and you have men holding the power. Um, and then, you know, especially if you're trying to, uh, build a business that's for black women, by black women, um, trying to figure out ways to get around those traditional circles of power. Um, so that you can go directly to your intended audience. Um, yeah. That's difficult. And, and, you know, just imagine that you really are a black woman trying to sell a product to and for black women, yet you still have to jump over these hoops that, yep. you know, these men are carrying. Yep. I mean, it just shows just how much power they have. They can, they, they're gatekeepers. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but it bears repeating, you know, the, the part about um, Sarah having to think of a different approach. If she wants, if she wanted to be the entrepreneur that she always, you know, felt like she was meant to be, she was going to have to um, go through black women to do that. She wasn't going to be able to appeal to these black men like mm-hmm. she thought she would just because she had a great business plan or just because she had something that was profitable. That didn't matter because um, all they saw was that she was a woman. She was going to yeah. have to go to her, you know, black sisters. Um, and thank goodness the National Association of Colored Women um, were there for her, you know, after she appealed to them and they happened to have money. You know, that was the biggest thing. They had money. And, you know, just when she thought that she, you know, had lost it all and she didn't know if she was going to ever be able to get this factory. Um, and I think there was even the question of whether her business would be in operation, right? Because didn't yeah. Ransom say, like, you got a week yeah. until it's all over? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she was in a very tight position. And then who knocks on the door? the National Association of Colored Women, <laughs> and they came with checks. They came with checks. Yes. She had enough money. And now it was time to celebrate. Bring on the champagne. Mm-hmm. She's at the party. Yep.
And it was nice to see Booker T. Washington's wife. It was just nice to see her have, you know, pull out her check and with her yeah. signature on it. That that was very meaningful because regardless of what my husband thinks, this is what I think and I'm standing my ground on that. And I I was, yeah, that was a very moving scene. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, we're talking about Black female entrepreneurship, you know, going back to the, the actual people that this, um, that this film or this miniseries is based on Sarah Breedlove and Annie Turnbull Malone, mm-hmm. we got to talk about their legacy, um, especially in, in business. Um, so one of the things that I would say is part of their legacy is just this female-centered direct business model um, that we see with different products. Um like Avon or Mary Kay, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, because they, that's what they did. They, they went door to door. They had, you know, they hired um, sales agents to go around the country and, you know, uh, you know, to different countries. Um, earlier I was talking about how um, Madam DJ Walker had gone into the Caribbean um, to, uh, to expand her business. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, not necessarily, I'm not saying that they created this business model. I'm not sure about that one. Um, But, you know, they became some of the first uh, female millionaires in this country. So clearly they had a successful model, right? Yeah. And, you know, with these products, you know, being made by black women for black women and being sold by black women. You know, you have a you have a situation where there's black women who became millionaires serving and employing mm-hmm. black women. And that's such a powerful thing. Yeah, I think I believe Avon maybe was um, probably uh, I believe Avon started in the 1800s, like 1886. Okay. So the model probably already existed, but you know, it wasn't for black women to work. Right. You couldn't sell no Avon. So it's just really nice to like, um, to take matters into your own hands. And that's what an entrepreneur does. Really, you see a need and you create the solution to the need. Um, and so that's what she did. Right, absolutely. And then to be more specific, uh, you know, the legacy of these two women is really in the black hair care industry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it was, it is, it will always be multi-million dollar, billion dollar industry. Um, you know, if, if one thing that black women will buy is hair care products, you know, yep. and, and there's a lot of brands out there that, that know that to be true, you know, whether it's black owned or not. So, you know, some of the more popular brands that we know of include Carol's Daughter, Shea Moisture, uh, Miss Jessie's, and then we have other brands that are, um, you know, they have, they're, they're more so for the masses, but they do have black hair care lines, uh, like a red line or um, uh, what else? Pansy. 
Huh? Pantene has one. Dark, yeah, like a Pantene. Dark yeah. And lovely. There's all kinds of uh, brands out there that specifically target black women um, and and black hair. Um, and, you know, in the previous episode, we even mentioned some of the celebrity brands that are out there, too, um, for black hair, like Gabrielle Union and Tarazi C. Henson, Tracy Ellis Ross. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think we buy all the the cosmetics, really, black women from makeup to skincare to hair care. We are we contribute to those industries a lot. Major drivers for sure, you know. Yeah. And again, it's very ironic that you know, I don't know if Booker T. Washington actually looked down upon um, hair culture mm-hmm. or beauty culture I mean um, but it's very ironic that at least the character of Booker T. Washington in this miniseries uh, you know downgraded it so much because I mean it's such a there's money to be made yeah <laughs> yeah for sure um, you know the other thing uh, part of uh, Sarah Breedlove and Annie Malone's legacy is it lies in black hair stylists and salon owners um, so I would imagine that Sarah Bree Love and Annie Malone were not the very first uh, black women to ever own a salon or to ever um, sell products, um, but they became some of the most famous uh, black women in history to do so, especially, mm-hmm. you know, Madam C.J. Walker. Um, but we can see this in, in other, like, celebrity stylists to this day if you have somebody like Kim Kimball who's a celebrity stylist and she was able to to get a reality show yeah based off of her reputation as a hairstylist yeah yeah um you have Johnny Wright who became a celebrity in his own right simply because he did Michelle Obama's hair Mm -hmm. while she while she was in the White House and I think maybe to this day Mike still do her hair. He has a show coming out with Tamar Braxton on I I think it's on VH1. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I forgot the name, but yes. I did hear about that. It's something about like uh <laughs> um, unfortunately like some disaster hairstyles, I guess, yeah. with uh with these hairstylists and so yeah. they're they come in there to try to fix it. Um <laughs> we'll yes. see what happens with that. <laughs> yes. Sounds interesting. Um, you know, you have uh, the makers of Miss Jessie's, Miko and TT Branch. Um, I believe TT passed away a couple years ago, um, but Miko is still uh, going strong with um, with their salon and with their uh, Miss Jessie's products. Um, and there's probably more. Uh, I know that there's more uh, black stylists um, that I didn't name, but yeah. We definitely see more of them um, coming out to the fore in pop culture. Mm, yes, absolutely. And then, of course, you know, this is the information age. We live in the virtual space. We live on the Internet now. And um, especially when it comes to natural hair, a lot of people have learned how to do their own natural hair through the help of 
bloggers and bloggers. What was really interesting to me was um, uh, Madam C.J. Walker and Annie Malone had, you know, colleges. They called them colleges, but, you know, really it, it was places where they could teach, um, first of all, you know, teach women how to do their own hair um, or how to care for their own hair using their products and also teaching these women how to sell their products. Um, you know, so, so training training grounds for them. But, you know, this is what we call hair care education. Um, and we see that to this day. You go to different YouTube channels and you can learn how to take care of 4C, 3C, 2C hair. And, yep, yep. You know, try out these different products and see what happened there. You can learn how to braid hair. You can learn how to twist hair. And, you know, probably anything you could ever want to learn how to do when it comes to black hair, you could probably find it there. And if you don't find it, then maybe wait a week and then it'll come up. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody will record it. Um, it's a lot of so work. Perfect. That's a lot. That YouTube stuff. My goddaughter yes. is um, starting to get into it, doing these like little cooking videos and to help her put it together. It is a lot of work. So I commend these uh, bloggers because <laughs> They are literally, if they have regular jobs, they're working two jobs. Like, it's a lot. And to continuously put out content, gosh, it's just, and edit it and put it up, it's a lot. It ends up being a lucrative, you know, business for them. They're yep. able to get endorsements, get paid off of the commercials and stuff. So, or, you know, they're able to monetize their videos. Yep. Um so yeah, it's it's another opportunity for for uh, entrepreneurship. Um, do you have any favorite bloggers or bloggers that you like to go to that do hair? Mm-hmm. I love I like Hey Friend Hey a lot. I just like her in general. Like her whole vibe is so cool. So I watch her a lot. But um, other than that, I don't really look at hair vlogging i look at other blog type of blogging but not hair but i do love hey friend hey yeah i follow curly nikki and natural 85 mm-hmm. um so those are go to every now and then i'll look up stuff on youtube not necessarily looking for a particular person but you know just kind of finding uh just focusing on the information Um, and that that's helpful but um yeah it's really nice knowing that it's so easy to find information now because there used to be a time where it was very difficult you you couldn't hardly find anything unless you knew exactly where to go um yeah so it's 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 really great It's it's a new day and it's just very fascinating again to learn you know this is an opportunity for us to learn our history our black history, our black black female history. Yes. Um, you know, by, by learning more about Sarah Breedlove and Annie Malone. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I will say though, I find it therapeutic to watch vloggers do their makeup on YouTube. <laughs> it's so calming to me so calming so should we go ahead and run this episode through the dorsey flowers test 
Let's run it, run it. Okay. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Do you want do you want to do this or you want me to do it? Um, it's up to you. What what do you are you tired of talking? <laughs> You no, wanna... I'm not tired of talking, but oh. I'm, I just don't want to dominate the conversation. Oh, no, no, no. It's fine. No, it's fine. All right. So, y'all know that this is a two-step process with a lot of sub-steps. Yes. <laughs> so, it's not quite a two-step, but, you know, go with us. Um, all right. So, step one, regardless of age, sexual orientation, trans identity, disability, religion, nationality, whether in live action or animated films, we are looking at characters who are black and female. Mm-hmm. All right. So do we have black women characters in this film? We most certainly do. Yes, we do. All right. So step two. And this is the multi-step. It's like eight steps in step two. <laughs> okay. Number one. Are there at least two named black female characters? Yes. Yeah. Do they talk to each other? Oh, yes. Do they talk to each other about something other than a man or a non-black female character? Yes. Yes. And I had to think about that because, you know, especially this episode, it was a lot talking about uh, sexism and, you know, uh, again, trying to get that endorsement by Booker T. Washington. Um, but we did have some moments where black women were, were talking to each other about something that's not directly related to a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Esther and Lilia okay. having their little private moment. <laughs> okay. And um, I, I know we will probably get into that the next episode, but just what lesbianism meant during those times, um, you know, historically and still today, you know, that's, it's still being judged and looked at today as lesser than, or like you're sick or, you know, all of these things. And so for that to be happening during that time is just, and it being highlighted through the series is is just nice to say i think mm-hmm. um okay so is a black female character primary in this episode yes absolutely um does the black female character live until the end of the film yes yep are the black female characters non-stereotypical <sighs> yes i would say yes I would. I think I'm struggling a little bit with it. Um, even though we know that these women were educated, and you know we have this background information, just the fact of them having to be put into a subservient role, um, I think we see stereotypes in this particular uh episode but we also see the stereotype shift a bit so you know i was okay i can see that um but i think for me i feel like 
I feel like in some ways it subverts the stereotype mm. where, you know, the women of the um, National Association of Colored Women kind of subvert that stereotype of being subservient, um, you know, and just kind of knowing their place. Because a lot of times um, women who are educated like them and have that level of privilege, um, we usually see white women occupy that lane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily see black women, uh, you know, privileged like that, um, who have education, who have money, who uh, are able to create their own society. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, a lot of times we just don't see women who, who are like, if they're in the kitchen, it's because they're working, you know, they're domestic laborers. They're not in the kitchen having tea. Right. Um, so I feel like it, it kind of subverts that, that stereotype sometimes, you know, uh, like for instance, there's this damsel in distress trope that a lot of white women are given and black women aren't. And when black women are given that trope, is it stereotypical? I would argue no, because they're not normally allowed the opportunity to be a damsel in distress. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of why I'm like, I feel like these characters were non-stereotypical. Plus, of course, Lilia, who is, who, you know, <laughs> quite unique. And we've never really, well, not, I won't even say never, but we rarely see depictions of women during this time in the early 1900s exploring their sexuality in that way. Right. I agree with you. I I do see your point. But it's so many. The the reason why this piece is so um, important for us to take through the Dorsey Flower test is because there are so many different characters, especially in this episode, black female characters there's so many different so I could say oh I felt like one character was stereotyped but then three others aren't you know what I mean right Um, so which is why it's so important that we have multiple depictions of black women right okay um so then we'll move on to the last one does a black female character have political or social relevance absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret Washington, Madam CJ Walker, Lilia again. With yeah. Picture of uh, at you know at least at this moment we are assuming that she might be bisexual because she's still she's still a married woman. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Still married, but exploring. <laughs> exploring. I think you left out one agency. Does a black female character have the oh. ability to make her own choices? And we're talking about Lilia. <laughs> She's definitely making her own choices to explore the sexuality component of her life. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes. Thank you for catching that. Absolutely. She, she is showing her agency there. And of course we see that with, um, with uh, Madam C.J. Walker as well, uh, at least trying to assert her agency. We award one extra bonus point if 
the film that we are reviewing has a black woman director or writer. Mm-hmm. And so this episode has both a black woman director and a black woman writer. Yay! So we're going to add two points. All right, so let's add this up here. All right, we ready for the grand total? Yes. We got a 10. Yay! Whopping 10. Yay! Perfect score. That's great. I, I did like this episode better than the first one, I, w- I must say. Okay. Yeah. What did you like better about it? Um, I love the it what what I felt like more of a highlight towards the women of that time period and just how different they were and knowing that they still pursued their dreams, their education. Um, and still managed to support their household and and their children and support each other. And I just thought that was just great to see, especially during this time we're living in now, where I'm I'm at least feeling that um, we're not upholding black women the way they should be. Um, and so I, it was just nice to see that on screen in a time period where it was hard for black women to be educated, to have their own businesses, to start their own organizations, and they still did it. So that means it can be done. And now that we had, we're in 2020, we have a whole different set of resources and opportunities. We can make it happen now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I did like this episode a little better, too, um, for a lot of the reasons that you were saying. But um, I felt like it was more it, it was more focused on, um, you know, the, uh, the sexism and the uh, and the focus on black entrepreneurship and just highlighting how difficult it was specifically to be a black woman entrepreneur. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are just very, a uh, uh, lot of challenges that are just very specific um, beyond just race, beyond just gender. It's it's the combination of the two. Yes. Um, and, you know, to, to deal with that, and particularly during that time, and to still somehow make, you know, become successful, um, it's just, it's, it's, mind-boggling in a lot of ways yeah yeah all right well you guys listen we are always here for your opinion as well we would love to add your opinion to the conversation go ahead and send us an email with your thoughts to young black and brave at gmail.com that's young black and brave at gmail.com also follow us on social media we're young black and brave at i mean sorry also follow us on social media we are young black and brave 
on Instagram and Facebook and YBB podcast on Twitter. All right. Listen, you guys be safe out there. We see you. We hear you. We strongly believe Black Lives Matter. We love you. We love being black. And we know that we will get through this. So as long as we're working together, nobody can see us. Really, they can't. Um, We'll talk to you next week. In the meantime, stay brave. Peace.